Well done. Thank you, guys. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter 11, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 11 today. Uh, if you've been around this summer, you know that we have been uh, going through a series called Is It Real? And we've been looking at our church doctrinal statement and just very things that we've been uh, believing about that and reviewing about that. Uh, and today, we, have, well, we, have, we haven't been able to finish it before the summer is over, but we'll continue next summer. But I thought today we would uh, conclude our series by talking about doubt and exactly what to do with doubt. And today, I, wanna, I just want to ask a few questions about you and what you believe and why you believe it. And I just really want to start out by asking, uh, what do you know for sure? What do you know for sure? What do you believe and what are your core beliefs? What are the core beliefs that you know you're for sure, for sure, for sure? What do you believe about God? What do you really believe about Him? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the Holy Spirit? What do you believe about heaven and hell? Is there a heaven or is there a hell? What are your beliefs about moral and ethics? What are your ethics? Do you even have them? Do you know what they are? Do you even know? Do you know what your bottom lines are? Those lines that you have that you will not cross. What do you believe about honesty? What do you believe about the purpose of your life? What is the purpose of your life? Not Pastor Dan's life. Not our life, your life. What is the purpose of your life? What do you believe and why do you believe it? Do you believe it? What do you believe about intimacy and purity and marriage and singleness? Let me give you a little bit of a more challenging question. How do you know whether or not you believe what you say you actually believe? More and more of us are increasingly suspicious of what we are being told, either through the media or through the education or through pol politics or whatever. And I think that there is a good reason for that, and that has caused us to be in a culture in a season of doubt. And I want to take some time today to address what God's Word says about doubt, because I know that every single one of us we'll go through seasons in our life when we doubt. And the Bible has a lot to say about the doubt. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to look at a story found in Matthew chapter 11, and I'd like to make two observations about doubt, and I'd like to give you three practical tools about how to deal with doubt. Is that okay? Everyone smile and nod? All right. Let's begin by looking at up the Word of God. Matthew chapter 11, verse... Uh, one says this, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard this, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Jesus, he sent word by his disciples, so he sent a message to Jesus. And he said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? I'd like you to highlight that, that, that phrase right there. And Jesus answered them, 
Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the man who is not offended by me. And as they went on their way, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And he said to them, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothings are kings and houses. So then what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, and he will prepare your way. Truly, I say, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. This is the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, as we open up your word today, we just pray that you would help, uh, help us understand and uh, be convicted of what your word has to tell us. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen. Now, I know that most of you know who John is, and I I know the van talked about John, uh, but I feel like just in case there's someone new here who might not have not heard of John before, and this is your first time hearing the story, I just want to recap a little bit about who John is, because it's, it's important to understand that as we, as we go here. So basically what I need you to know about John is that John was the bomb. Everyone say it with me. John was the bomb. Oh, guys. Oh, yeah. We got some work to do. Okay. Well, what I mean by that is he was the model example of what it meant to be the godliest man of that era next to Jesus. So, ladies, if you were looking for a godly man, if you've been praying and going, God, I, all I really wanted, I don't care what he looks like, I don't care what he smells like, I don't care how much money he makes, I just want a man who loves Jesus. And you know what God would do? He would answer that prayer, and John would bust down the door and go, boom, here I am. And he would look nothing like you would think a godly man would look like. He took, John, what we know about John is he took a part of what was called a Nazarite vow, which you can read about in the Old Testament. And it's this vow that he would dedicate his life to God by promising not to cut his hair or have any alcohol whatsoever. So he was kind of a wild man of a guy. He looked really, really weird. So you bought, you, John busts open the door. He says, here I am. I'm the godly man and all this kind of thing. And you're thinking, you're thinking Midwest, right? You're thinking jeans, a plaid shirt, knife-cut hair, an ESV Bible, like the size of like my, my thigh right there. That's what you're thinking. Drives a pickup truck, goes to church every day, has an, uh, has an uh, I love Alberta beef and an I, I love an Alberta bumper sticker on the back. That's the kind of person that you're thinking. But John, on the other hand, is vastly different. His hair was so long, I think I mentioned this before, that he would wrap it around his waist like a belt. It says this about John, that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. So he wasn't ex exactly 
what you would expect a godly man to look like. He wasn't exactly the kind of guy that you would take home to your parents. So you would take him home anyway, and your parents sit him down for a nice meal, and he says, don't mind me, I'm gluten-free, I'm starting my diet by some, some dipping some locusts into some honey, maybe some fries and some ketchup. And you compare that image at like to, to what we think uh, a godly man is today. It's totally different. There was this wildness to John. This untameness, it's not really what you would expect. And nobody could tame him except from God himself. There was something raw about him. And John had a job. John had one job his entire life. Does anyone guess what that job was? Any takers? What's that? Carrying God's word. word. That's part of it. Anyone else? Yeah, I heard it. Preparing the way for the Lord. His job was to make, uh, sort of prepare the way for Jesus. Or the other, the way I like to say it is, he liked to prepare the ground of people's hearts, and he liked to soften the ground before Jesus came, right? So he would talk a lot about repentance and following Jesus, and he knew who Jesus was. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew that Jesus, he had this rock-solid conviction. This is really important to get, okay? He had this rock-solid conviction that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the Messiah, that he was coming, that he was the Savior, that everyone was looking for, so much so that he gave his life to preparing everybody for Jesus. And uh, what winds up happening is he spends that life doing that. And when we read about the Gospel, the very first thing that we're talked about most of the time is John, and then it turns to Jesus. So John is the focus at the beginning a little bit, and then when you go throughout the Gospels and the Gospel progresses, the story focuses less on John and more on Jesus. Dan talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And we don't really hear much about John and what happens to John after that for a really long time until we get to this story here. And we find out that John is in prison. Okay? And we don't know why he's in prison yet. We're actually not told that. In this verse, we're actually, it's actually told a little bit later in Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew chapter 14, we find out why he's in prison. And it says this, So for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison, and for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So he imprisoned him. So basically, here's what I need you to hear about this. Is that John has this rock-solid conviction that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the one, he's the Lamb of God that is going to save the world. And so as the spotlight gets focused more on Jesus, and Jesus becomes more famous and more popular, John is still doing his thing. John is still telling people and getting people ready for Jesus and softening their hearts towards the message of Jesus as Jesus is going out and doing this ministry. And he believes it so much so. This is, this is a crucial part I want you to understand. He believes he has this conviction so much bound in his heart that he is willing to call out one of the most powerful men in that geographical region under Rome for his lifestyle, and he is willing to say, this is not okay, what you're doing is not all right, 
this is not okay before God. You need to get ready. You need to repent. You need to get ready for Jesus. And he believes it so fervently that he is willing to go to prison over it. Okay? That's sort of the setup for Matthew chapter 11. Okay? So here's John, and he's the godliest guy in this era next to Jesus. That's what Jesus says. The spotlight centers on Jesus. John just keeps doing his thing. He's got this rock-solid conviction that Jesus is going to save the people, so he keeps doing his thing. And he, he calls out people, he tells them to repent. He does everything right. He never drinks. He never cuts his hair. He memorizes entire portions of the Bible. He went to Vicky and Gar's Bible quizzing thing where they learned scripture. He would go to church. He never missed a day of church. He tied 10%. He does everything right, and yet he still goes to jail. So I need you to understand the equation that's going on in his mind right now. I want to explain how he's thinking right now. The equation is this. I've been faithful to Jesus, and something bad happened. I've been faithful to Jesus, and I'm in jail. Or if I were to put it in a modern day kind of example, it would be this. I've been faithful to Jesus, and I still got cancer. I've been faithful to Jesus, and my marriage is off the rails. I've been faithful to Jesus, and I have no friends at school. I've tithed, and now I'm going bankrupt. I've been faithful, and my kids are off the rails. And the equation, the equation doesn't seem to make any sense to John because he's thinking through a religious paradigm. So he's asking the question, should I look for another? Which is a really odd question to ask. Because as I've just told you, John has a rock-solid conviction that Jesus was the Messiah. So if John knew that Jesus is the Messiah, if he already knew that, why is he asking? Have you ever wondered that when you read this passage? Why is John asking Jesus if Jesus is the Messiah, if he already knew? Let me paraphrase what is going on here, just so you understand. Okay? What John is really asking is, he's been saying Jesus is the Messiah, and he, said, and he, goes, and he goes and he asks Jesus, are you the Messiah, or should we look another? What he's really asking is this, Was I wrong about you? Because you haven't protected me from jail or cancer or an abusive marriage. My my love has just died. My first my marriage my my partner has just died. My spouse has just died. I'm going through this difficulty, and maybe I'm wrong about God. And here's where I want you to understand that we've all been there, where you've been through some suffering on some level. And you're asking yourself, and I know that we all have, maybe Jesus isn't the one. Maybe I should be looking for another. Okay? And if you haven't been there, you will be. And here's what this is. When the question of suffering arises, doubt rises too. I found this. Suffering raises the idea that maybe I shouldn't believe in Christianity anymore. 
Doubt can come from a lot of places, friends. But I've noticed that when I suffer in my life, I tend to raise the question of, of, of my doubts more. We doubt for many reasons, and, uh, but I have noticed I am more prone to doubt when my life is falling apart. I'm not saying that every single time you doubt or you question, it's because your life is in suffering. I'm just making the observation that when the poopy stuff hits the fan, that's when I start wondering about the goodness of God. And that's why I start wondering, did I get it wrong? Is Jesus really the Messiah? Should I be looking for another? I start doubting and I start questioning. Now I want to be careful and explain a little about this. this is, I, want to, I want you to understand that this kind of mentality is what is going on with John when he is asking that question. John is beginning to doubt his convictions because he is going through a time of suffering. Okay? Now I want to be careful here and just make a, a little bit of an observation is that John isn't in a place where he is in unbelief. John is in a place of doubt, okay? And you need to understand that unbelief and doubt are not the same thing. So let me, let me explain this real quick for you, okay? So there's belief. There's something over here. That you're, this is belief over here, okay? So this is something you, you, you're reading God's Word and you're listening to it and you believe something about what God's Word is. So for example, God cares about me, okay? So that's your set of beliefs over here. And then you have a set of unbeliefs over here. And unbeliefs are anything that pushes back against what God has said. So, for example, God loves me over here, but maybe uh, over here I believe that God doesn't care about me. Why do I believe that God doesn't care about me? Because I got laid off of work right now. Okay? And I don't really know if he cares about my protection or whatnot. Doubt is not unbelief. Doubt is being caught between the two. Okay? Doubt is the idea that you are stuck between two opposing beliefs. I believe God loves me, and I believe God doesn't love me. And so what winds up happening is what you and I love to, in our lives... We, sometimes what we do is we entertain both ideas. Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus isn't the Messiah. And we have our feet in both, both camps. That's what doubt is. It's this uncertainty that goes on. It's not necessarily the same thing as unbelief. And unbelief is a conviction. Okay? And that is what John is going through. And what I want, I want to make two observations about what John is doing with his doubt. And the first is this. And I want you to hear this very strongly, is that even the greatest among us doubt. Let me say that again. Even the greatest among us doubt. The strongest Christians among us will go through seasons in our life where we will ask the question, should I be looking for another? And the first thing I want to say about this is that because John asked the question, we are all prone to ask the question. John, according to Jesus, was the greatest born among women who ever lived in that era. And I know that he struggled with doubt too. He was a man of rock-solid conviction. And yet here he is, knowing in the past that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet he's questioning it. 
I know that some of you know this, and I know it goes without saying, but just in case you haven't heard it, and you need someone to give you permission before you do, I want to let you know that you don't have to have it all together at Manor. If you need to fall apart, you can fall apart here. If you feel like your life is about to break in to a million pieces and you feel like you need to come to church with a mask on into this building, you don't have to. You can break apart here. If you're doubting, you can doubt here. And this is a really crucial thing I need you to understand. When you read through the Gospel of uh, Matthew, every single solitary instance, every single one of a person who is having doubts or having criticisms or having a hard time believing in Jesus, it's always the believers, not the atheists. Okay? Every single solitary time you run into someone who has a hard time believing in Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, it's always someone who believes in Jesus. Right? Peter, walking on the water, goes and he gets scared. What does Jesus say to him? Why did you? Come on. Doubts. So I need you to understand that there is that it is okay to raise your questions of doubt in this building. I am not scared of your questions, neither is the church, and that means that some of you may have some serious questions of doubt, and I want you to know, like Manor is a safe place in regard to being a doubter and a skeptic. In other words, if you're questioning your faith, it's okay to bring those questions here. I'm not going to tuck tail and run. You can wrestle and doubt here, and I would way rather you have your object, hear objections to the gospel and church than have you hear objections from a liberal arts professor. I would way rather you do that. When I tell you this stuff, I'm not trying to fool you or keep any information from you that may cause you to doubt. I want you to know that you can bring your questions here. And what Jesus is about to do is he's about to help John overcome his doubt, but I need you to know that you can ask your questions here. Do you know that when I was at camp uh, last week, or a couple weeks ago, uh, one, of the, one of the things that you have to deal with when you evangelize is you have to, you have to address people's questions. And while I was at camp, and I was telling these 11, 12, and 13-year-olds that Jesus wanted them, that Jesus cared for them, I got some doozies of some questions. You want to know what the most frequent question was I got from teenagers? Anyone want to take a guess? Pastor Dan, why can't I love who I want to love if the Bible is true? Hard question, eh? Hard question from 11-year-olds at camp. Even the greatest among us will doubt. The second observation I want to make is this, is that Jesus is the safest person to trust with your doubts. I want you to know what is what John does with his doubts. John doesn't run away from Jesus when he's questioning whether or not he's the Messiah. John doesn't suspend his faith 
John doesn't go to some sort of secular reasoning or something. John actually brings his doubt to Jesus. And I want you to, I want, that is a key thing I want you to hear about because when you are doubting, Jesus is the safest place to deal with or person to deal with and bring your doubts to. You can bring your doubt to Jesus. Jesus is not scared of your doubt either. Okay? And I think that is really, really important for you to understand because there is a danger in doubt and you need someone to help you navigate that. And that, that a person who is the safest person, who is not going to manipulate your doubt or uh, abuse your doubt anyway, is Jesus Christ. Okay? There is danger in doubt. I, I, I know, this is going to sound a little weird, but I want to I make it clear that it's okay for you to question, but the longer that you're in a season in doubt, the more in danger you are. It's kind of like going outside without any sunscreen. It's okay to go outside, but the longer you're outside, the more in danger you are of a sunburn. Let me explain this in two ways. There are two things that I see that when we are in a season of doubt that we have to watch for and be careful of. And the first is this, is that we can begin to see doubt as a sign of spiritual maturity. And that is what I am actually seeing in Christianity right now, that it is more advantageous for you to have doubt than have faith. In other words, the more you doubt, the more spiritual you are, and the less you ask questions, and the more faith you have, the more immature that you are. And it's really, really weird. If you express certainty in your faith at all, that you have a rock-solid conviction, what winds up coming is what winds up uh, happening is you're viewed as not as enlightened as the rest of us. And so what happens is it becomes a culture of doubt where doubt itself is the thing that is celebrated instead of G- instead of faith. So rather than let's look at our doubts and try to work through him, it's actually a, it's actually a spiritual gift to always be in a season of doubt, and that is dangerous. I want you to look at what Hebrews 11.6 says. I want you to read the text in yellow with me as we read. And it is to please him, for whoever would draw near to God, and he rewards those who seek him. Notice something. Notice that it doesn't say, and without doubt it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must doubt that he exists. It doesn't say that. Okay? But right now, there's this thing going on in Christianity that kind of says that doubt is a spiritual gift. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And I never read that verse. I never read it in Galatians where it says, the, spirit, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and doubt. I never heard that. And yet, what winds up happening is that we can see it as a sign of spiritual maturity. The other thing that I want you to understand is that doubt actually makes you unstable. It makes you unpredictable as a person. Let me read to you what it says in James chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. But let him, in faith, ask with, what does it say? 
No doubting. For the one who is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is... So let me explain what happens with doubt. I love, the way, here, let me, I love the way the NLT puts this. Let me read the NLT and then I'll explain this. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, make sure your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with a divided loyalty is unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. When you are in a season of doubt, what winds up happening is you become unpredictable. Okay? What do we mean by that? Well, simply this, is that you have these... Well, let me see if I can do it over here. You have these beliefs over here. God loves me. Okay? Then you have these other beliefs over here. God doesn't care for me. And you have one foot in one camp and one foot in the other camp, and they're pulling you apart. And you're, the danger is, is that you do nothing and you fall right through the middle. If you're constantly having to question what is real and what is true, it will cause you to freeze and be indecisive. And I actually think that it is more dangerous to you in your life to be undecisive than actually to pick the wrong thing. At least if you pick the wrong thing, God's Holy Spirit can convict you and he can tell you, hey, like this is wrong. But when you are undecisive, you wind up freezing and you, no one is able to predict what you do. You are unpredictable. Being undecisive in any part of life, having doubt, is a very dangerous thing. Take, for example, car driving. I actually think that the worst kind of drivers are not necessarily the drivers who drive the wrong way. They're the drivers who are undecisive. Let me explain this for you. About a number of years ago, I was driving from Steinbach to Winnipeg on a highway. And that highway was relatively fast. It was busy. It was a two-lane highway. It was, it was super, super busy and fast and all that kind of thing. And I was going up, I was coming upon this car in the highway. It was about 110 was the speed limit. We were driving, and I noticed that the car is slowing down. Okay? Not like a gradual stop where you think, oh, maybe he's trying to avoid a deer or something. Just this gradual Sunday morning, let's look at the flowers kind of stop, right? And so here I am, and I'm driving, and I'm like barreling down on him, and I'm trying to decide what I'm going to do. For the first thing I think is not very godly at all, but I, I won't let you know that. But my second thought was, what am I going to do? And I had two decisions in front of me. One was, I'd stop the car in time enough where I'd figure out what he did, and, and the second was, is as I looked down on the lines, and the line said I could pass, so I was going to pass him. So I was trying to figure out what to do. And what wound up happening is I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to pass him. I don't know why he's there. It's a little weird. I'm just going to go. So go in the next lane, and I, I start revving up, and I start going to pass him. And at the very, very, very last second, he slowly turns on his left turn signal. So I'm here. And he's here, stopped, and it's like that, right? And I swerve, and I just barely hit his curve. You remember that, Liz, right? 
it was, it was one of the days where she never trusted me to drive the car again. So we pull out of the car, we're fine. I talked to the driver, and I said, what happened? And he's like, well, I couldn't decide whether I wanted to turn left or not. Indecisiveness. If you think about work or you think about any kind of thing where you're, you're in a position of doubt and you're not really sure, it's the same sort of idea. Take, for example, me. I used to have a job. I, used to, I was jobless for a while, and I, I, I had this conviction. Liz actually reminded me of this. Is I had this conviction that you know God had called me into ministry, but I couldn't find any 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 place to be in ministry with. So I needed a job, so I started applying for a job. At the same time, I was applying for a church. I was applying for this one. Okay, and what wound up happening was is is like I don't know if you've ever done this before, where you've been out of work and you have a job that you really want, and then you have a secondary backup job that you're like. I want this one more, but if this one comes through, that would be good. And you're kind of waiting for the job that you want to phone first. But what wound up happening is the secondary job that I called wanted first, right? So the church did the phone, and they were like, you got to let us know within two days. And I'm like, ah, what do I do? If I say no and the church says no, I'm out of work, and all this kind of thing, and I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the job that I don't want, and then if the church calls in a week, I'll quit, and I will take the church job. Now, how many of you, if you were an employer and you knew that I was going to do that, would want that? No, of course not. But you see what I'm saying? It was in a season of doubt. It was this undecisiveness, this kind of un, what, where God has called me, what he wanted me to do, that, was, that made me entertain that. When you are in a season of doubt, you are uncertain, and when you are uncertain, you freeze, and that is actually a worse kind of thing. So I want to be careful to say that this is why it is so important for you and I to recognize that Jesus is the safest place to bring our doubts to. Okay? Because there's, when you and I try to solve our doubts apart from Jesus, we run into thinking that doubt makes us more mature, or we run into being thinking that we are unpredictable. So those are the two observations. Now, I want to give you three, three things to deal with, three ideas to deal with your doubt when it comes from uh, when you are in a season of doubt. What do you do if you're in doubt? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is, if you can move it to the next slide, is that John asked Jesus first. Okay, move it to the next one. John asked Jesus first. When John doubted, the first thing that he did was he got his disciples and he sent them to ask Jesus the question. I think the very first thing that you do when you are struggling with doubt, whatever it is, whether it's the Bible or whether it's evolution or whatever, whatever doubt you have, the first, very first thing is you take it to Jesus himself. And I know that sounds circular, and I know that sounds weird because Jesus is the person you're doubting, but let me, let, let me, let me bring it down in this way. If the FBI came to me today and said, Dan, Elizabeth is a Russian spy, let's say that, okay? And here's all the paperwork, and here's all the proof, and here's the video, and here's the audio, and here's her speaking Russian. Did you know she spoke Russian? And I'd be like, whoa, like, I never know that, okay? I, 
let's suppose, for example, that they did that, and let's suppose, for example, it was true. Let's say Liz was a Russian spy. Sorry, babe. <laughs> you know what I would do? I, I wouldn't believe it until I talked to her first. None of you would about anything. If you doubted something about your spouse, you, and someone came to you and said, your, your spouse is not who you think it is, who they are, and here's all the evidence, and here's all the proof, the very, I know that most of you, what you would do is you would go to your spouse and ask them about all the evidence before you took it for face value. And I'm telling you to do the exact same thing with Jesus. When you doubt Jesus, and when you kind of think, hey, like, listen, I'm not really sure if this is true anymore, or maybe I, I was wrong about you, or should I be looking for another? The question of that doubt was pointed, John pointed that question to Jesus, and I am telling you to do the same thing, because what winds up happening is when most people doubt, they suspend their faith. So they come across something that causes them to question, and they stop praying, and they stop reading the Bible, and they stop going to church until they figure it out. Okay? And what winds up happening is they never bother to figure it out. So I'm telling you that if you're doubting, I know it sounds weird, but you know, go to God. Here's, here's what that would look like. God, here's the evidence that this professor brought, or I heard in this class, or that someone said, or whatever it is, and I'm really having a hard time trusting you. Can you tell me what the answer is? If any of you lacks wisdom, you should go to God, who gives generously without finding fault. Second thing is that when Jesus talks to him and Jesus responds, he says, go tell John. What does he tell John to say? He says, go see, tell John what you see and hear. And there's two aspects of this. John, Jesus is telling John to look around at the evidence around him. He's like, hey guys, look around. Did you just see this? That guy's healed over there, and that blind person is, has sight, and that leopard has walked, and that, pers- that poor person here has, has received grace and forgiveness, and all this kind of thing. Can you see the evidence? Can you see that? But the second thing he does is he quotes Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 65. So exactly what Jesus does is he does two things in that statement. Number one is he tells John to look at the evidence around him. Number two, Jesus quotes the Bible. And here's what I would say to you. When you're in a season of doubt, you should probably observe and see, observe what you see and hear around you. Look at the evidence. And here's how I would do that. I, I would... I would look at the Bible if you, were having a, if you were having a doubt about what the Bible said about one thing or the other. Here's what I would do. First thing, go to God and pray. Ask God to, to reveal to you. The second thing is, is I would listen to the strongest arguments made on both sides of that issue. And the third thing I would do is I would go back to the Word. And what I would do in the Word is I would do this, Okay. I would write, this is how I would do it. You don't have to do it like this, but, but this is how I would go about doing it. I would write a biblical justification for and against the doubt. And I would try my best to make the strongest possible biblical argument for both sides. And then I would stay back, I would pull back, 
And here's what I would do. I would ask myself, which one is the most biblical? Okay. Because what Jesus does is he points John back to the Bible. And I would, add, I would render to you that when you doubt and you are wondering what to do, that's what you should do. Look around you and look at the Word. And lastly, I would ask you, when you doubt, don't get offended by the response that Jesus gives. In verse 6, Jesus says something very profound. It's very interesting. He says, Blessed is the person who does not get offended by me. So here's what happens. is The disciples come. John's disciples come. They relay the question. Jesus goes, Go back and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight. The, the, uh, the, the, debtor, the leopards are healed. All this kind of thing. But there's, what's interesting about that is when, what Jesus is doing is he's quoting Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 65. And in Isaiah 65, there's a little part in there where it says that when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes, he will set the prisoners free. Okay? And Jesus deletes that. He doesn't actually say that to John. Instead, he says, blessed is he who wasn't coming for me, or blessed is he who was not offended by me. So when the disciples go back to John, John goes back, he's in prison, the disciples come, John says, okay, tell me what Jesus said. And, the John, and they relay the message, and they say, well, Jesus said, uh, Jesus said for us to observe what we see and hear, that the dead are raised, that the blind receive sight, the lepers, and immediately John's, John would have known that he's quoting those two verses. And he's like, oh yeah, this is it. He's going to quote the part where he's going to set the captives free. Jesus is coming. He's going to set me free. And, it, and he doesn't mention it. It's Jesus' way of telling John that he's not coming for him. But he's not going to rescue him. John, I'm not coming from you. And here's what I need you to understand about doubt. Sometimes the answer that Jesus gives us is not the one that we hear and we can get offended by it really easily. A number of years ago, I had two uh, teenage girls from my youth group come into my youth group and make a big argument about uh, what the Bible says about LGBTQ issues. And they said, Dan, we believe that the Bible says this. And we had this big debate. And I said to them, this is what I said to them. Okay. I said, girls, I'll tell you what. For an entire year, you and I will go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the entire Bible. And if by the end of that, I come to the conclusion that I was wrong, and the Bible does affirm that, I will admit it. Okay? The question I have, and I put this question to them, is that, but I want you to do the same thing. If you go through the entire Bible and you found out the answer that was in the Bible was not one that you wanted to hear, would you still accept it? And I would pose to you that that is the same question that you and I need to deal with today when we deal with doubt. If Jesus gave you an answer about your doubt that was hard for you to hear but true and biblical, would you accept it as true? 
If the answer is no, then you have a whole different issue than doubt. You have an issue of idolatry because what you've essentially said in that moment is that whatever the God says about this idea, my view on it is better. So this is, uh, this is, how, I would, this is how Jesus responds to John. John goes to Jesus. Jesus tells him to look and hear. And then Jesus tells him not to get offended or fall away. John, I'm not coming for you. It's not an answer that he would like to hear. Friends, we will all go through seasons of doubt. Even the strongest among us will doubt at times. But I want to let you know that when those seasons come, and they will come, Jesus is the safest place to bring your doubts to. Amen? Amen. Let's close with a song.